Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright. But when I grow up, I want to be Powers Booth. (laughs) Who doesn't, Pete? Who doesn't? (laughs) Today, we're talking about Minute 20, which begins with Bruce talking about the other guy making a mess and ends with Fury's need for a response team. Back on the show, it's Justin Yeager. Hello, JJ. I'm back. Hi, guys. Hi, Jay. Hey, we are thrilled to have you back. Uh, we had you um, two weeks ago talking about uh, the end of the bubble. That's right. <laughs> and now and now we're talking about uh, this. Okay, so JJ. We need a response. We need a response, David. Yes, we need a response. But first, this is your first chance to talk about Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner. What do you think? <sighs> Oh, no, he's sighing. Why is he sighing? Well, because here's the thing. So that there, I, I, I have lots of complex feelings about it. I think he ends up being the, the, the best, right? He's the best banner that we end up with. Um, but in this moment in time, going back to 2012 and thinking about this, I, I, I seem to remember in 2012, Ed Norton Jr. being literally my favorite actor in the universe at the time. Wow. Okay. And I, that's changed now. I don't necessarily feel the same way about him as I once did um, for lots of different reasons. And that's not important. But so I remember being hurt and let down of like, oh, my my view of Ruffalo at the time was like, oh, we're so we're bringing in a soft guy to, to be the Hulk. And, <laughs> and he's not that. He's not that. You know, this is it, it would. But that's where my brain was. I thought of him as something that wasn't this character um and i don't know that i thought ed norton jr was either but it's the same way of like when we talk about the spider-man and all these different things it's like you didn't find my banner right when you cast him is how i felt now that being said the reason why i started this the way i did is because he ends up being the best he the way he begins to embody the character as we go through he's the perfect choice he's the right guy for the job but i did as we go through this movie or as we go through his career as the hulk i'm talking about the mcu fully okay because i i think i was too sore for the reasons why i'm explaining it to you now i think i was hell-bent on saying no you're not my hulk you know when we're doing this um but um but you know as as we go with the other movies he just he does a really great job of it. He really becomes it. But I yeah. mean, I think, you know, Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno is, is the, the most <laughs> Hulk Hulk that I can ever think of because it's the one that I first imagined. And Absolutely. so that's, that's what I think of as, as Banner and Hulk and these kind of things. And these guys are new, but I, I like where he went with it. But at the time I was, I was sore. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking about the Hulk movie, even with Ed Norton, and I, it was hard for me to wrap my head around just not being Lou Ferrigno. Right. Like, the, the Hulk's <laughs> right. not supposed to get that big, guys. I know, because I saw Lou Ferrigno. Exactly. And, uh, right. You know, it's hard. Little it's hard did we know. That. Little did we yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Now, as somebody who read the comics, do you recall much of the relationship that that you read about between uh, Bruce and Natasha? Was there uh, much of a relationship between them as comic book characters? I feel like, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, I feel like that was completely created for this, for the MCU. I don't remember them ever, specifically, ever interacting. I know Black Widow as a character, but I don't know her as her dynamics between 
herself and these other characters in the MCU. I think that is a new thing that was written for the stories they wanted to tell here in the movies. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, it's and it's, it's interesting, and it really feels like, and we're seeing it here, like, you know, and this is coming with hindsight of the relationship between Bruce and Natasha over the course of this franchise, but there definitely is this growing relationship between them, and this is really kind of where all of it is starting here. And we're coming in into this minute at the end of this scene in a kind of an interesting emotional moment between the two characters as she has her gun drawn pointed at him she her eyes are kind of uh you know tearing a little bit and uh and he's talking about you know not uh, not letting the other guy come out and stuff and um it's i don't know i just find it an interesting way to kind of set up this relationship between these two characters that we're going to develop over the course of the film and over the course of the franchise for sure um I, I, I guess my first question for both of you is how how do you react to this moment with kind of her eyes, this teary-eyed reaction where like this tense moment of fright in her? Do you do do you think that she's actually like genuine fear of what Bruce has or can become? As we know from um not from the films, but from various other properties and stories, we know that she was at Culver University when Bruce uh hulks out and fights Emil Blonsky on the green there. And so she was there watching, so she knows what he can become. There is an element of this moment playing very much like what she we just saw her do in Russia, where she's She's play acting, right? This is her role. She gets into these situations and acts as and you know, as she needs to in a particular situation, and then instantly becomes the spy we all know that she is. So, is there that? Uh, I mean, how do you two read the way that the scene plays with her? Well, I'm going just on the movies, so you, or at least the way that I'm, I'm trying to put myself into where we were in the progression of the of the movies at the time, and because we don't have the context of everything that we learn later, I interpreted it as just fear at the time. But now, you know, going back at it and looking at it now, it could mean all different kinds of things about their relationship and and what Bruce and Natasha mean to each other. But in this, especially, you know, thinking about her fear of what he is or what he could be, that's that's what I imagined when I saw this the first time. What about you, Pete? Why are her eyes tearing up? Like, really? Like, as a care, I don't, I, I'm with you, JJ. I think it's probably fear. I don't, I think it's too early to ascribe any sort of, you know, sad romance to them yet. Right. I mean, that was, oh, no, that no, was no, like, no, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I just feel, I, I guess it's fear, but it, I, it's confusing to me. It's just confusing to me. It, like, she doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would naturally be scared in this situation, right? Even knowing that he could become the other guy. I, I feel like she's just, she's, we've, they've set her up as somebody who's always in control. And just a few minutes ago, they gave us this complete badass sequence with her with the chair and the fighting. And the, I have no reason to expect she's any less that person now. So I think it's weird. I think it's a weird character choice and maybe just weird lighting. I don't know. At least she would be able to escape, right? I mean, if yeah. nothing else. So I think right. you're right. I think even me claiming it fear is kind of like an apology to it because a little bit it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense to me yeah and it's it is one of those things where 
and this is you know where I also go where we had just seen this scene with her before earlier I mean or same day actually where she is playing these Russian criminals uh, by acting like you know they're beating her up and they're taking her down and all this stuff. Oh, and, and we find out that because because then we get that whole gag with um with Coulson calling and uh, she says you know she's got that line I've got him right where I want him right <laughs> and they're like what are you talking about without realizing that because they thought they had her and she's like they're giving me everything that I need and so it's an interesting moment to have. But then to instantly have this moment is like, are we getting two of the exact same situations where we just saw how she does her play acting to get what she wants? Is the way she's reacting just that play acting again here? And if so, is it too soon? Because I kind of felt like, especially because as soon as, you know, he kind of calms down, she has that moment of looking at him and then she kind of just drops her head and she's like, stand down. And she kind of goes back into spy persona. And so that's why I'm like, maybe there's a little bit of that play acting again going on here. She's hustling him with her almost tears. And we'll see she keeps hustling later in the movie. Like, I think that's like that is the thing that they're selling us. And so maybe we just get a little bit of that here. And it feels more intimate just because of the location and the fact that they're together in this little, little uh, uh, thatch hovel. Yeah, it just feels feels inauthentic. Well, and, you know, I I hesitate. I always hesitate bringing thoughts about the director up into, like, opinions as to how this particular director wanted to direct female characters. And and to a certain extent, she could be, you know, she could be uh, emoting fear without necessarily having the teary-eyed look also, you know, and because I every time I see that, it's like, is she about to cry? Like, what is going on with her eyes here? Why does she seem, you know, afraid to a point where she's going to burst into tears? And it plays a little weird for me. And I guess that's my situation with this moment. I think that's fair. Yeah. But hey, it it gets Bruce into the story. Uh, and and we have to the betrayal, right? We have to talk about the betrayal, too, because sure. like she had made the case in the last minute that they were alone. It was just the two of them. They were just talking, just for just buds. And it turns out they're very much not alone. Right. Yeah. I mean, how do we handle how do we how do we handle that? Yet another betrayal by the super spy. What's interesting about that betrayal is as opposed to the way that she reacts to the Russians when the betrayal is revealed, right? She still seems wary. Like she, like we see that great overhead shot. I love the overhead shot of the hobble as all the people are backing away. If you look at the tools that some of them have, I'm like, what on earth are these guys? Like, it's (laughs) weird, like four piece, like tongs, but they have like four prods on them and stuff. I'm like, I don't know what the heck these guys were doing. It's so weird. And the fact that there's a chicken standing in front the whole time makes me laugh to no end. It's just like, I don't care. You guys come. I'm not moving. It makes me laugh. What I think of when, he, when, when Pete, you say, what, what do we think of the betrayal of the spy? Is I think of Pirates of the Caribbean, where Captain Jack Sparrow says, pirate? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's okay. the spy. Like, yeah. it's go- they're yeah. going to betray you. That's the idea. Right. Yeah. yeah, right, right, right. right scorpion on the frog's back yeah i right, exactly I, I, I totally get that and of course she's gonna have somebody bring the gamma nets like there's, <laughs> there's just a lot of great stuff i yeah, just yeah, love yeah. it 
But it is interesting. What what I, I do think is interesting, though, is that she remains wary afterwards. She doesn't go into that. Like, in the, when she's talking to the Russians, once Coulson calls, her demeanor completely changes. Like, oh, yeah, I have these guys. It's it's nothing. And then she, like, takes them down. In this particular situation, that doesn't happen. We don't see her turn into just, like, the jovial S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. She still has kind of a wary look as she's looking at him. I think that's just interesting probably telegraphing more of their relationship for later in the film, um, which, you know, is probably a good thing. Yeah, makes sense. How do you guys feel about this as, uh, you know, we have a number of these scenes throughout the movie where we're building the team, right? We have, like, Natasha's going off to get Hulk, and we everybody's going off to get their own member of the of the team. And I think this is a chance where where, you know, many movies can really slow down in the building the team bit right they can really slow down and i'm curious what how how this not even just this minute but this segment of the film hits you uh do you ever get that feeling that it slows down or are you just still excited about the fact that we're building the team i remember for me i was just juiced about having everybody together and so i never really stopped to think about it until right now that uh, she is she's doing the hulk job but they're out getting the other guys too and does that still feel good I, I love building the team stuff like I, in any when, when, when that happens anywhere, you know, Ocean's Eleven, whenever they're out, you know, and finding them in their environment and bringing them back. I love those types of montages. So I was juiced with it. Okay. Uh, I this is this is what I, all of that expectation about this movie in relation to the other MC, MCU movies was about for me is gathering them up and having them fight together. So I loved it. Yeah, it's a nice uh, progression that we have that it, it and it feels natural, right? It doesn't feel like they're they're squeezing stuff in us unnecessarily. Like so far, all of these little beats have felt they, like they fit. And even this, you know, we did, coming into this bit with uh, with Bruce Banner out here helping people like it feels like even though it's a change in actor, it feels kind of like a progression from where we left the character at the end of The Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Like, I, I, I take your earlier point, JJ, about the switch of, uh, from Norton to Ruffalo, but I didn't stop and think for more than a few seconds that this was a different guy. I felt like pretty good about the way Ruffalo embodied the MCU banner and just brought us into it. Like, he's doing his thing. He's in, he's helping people, healing people around the world and trying just to stay out of everybody's way. And, and, I, I felt like he was hand to glove right away. I agree with that. I think the execution was perfect. It didn't, I didn't question it all in execution. It was all in, in anticipation, for sure. Sure. I feel like for me, the, it, it really kind of cemented him as Hulk later in this film when he's got his line about always being angry. It's like, oh, okay, yes. I, I feel like that, that just really sat well with me as far as him in, in the role. All right. Well, we go from this scene and we switch to the World Council. We are now um, in a meeting room on the on the carrier and we have Nick Fury standing in front of four screens. He sees four members of the World Security Council, two of them, Gideon Malik, played by Powers Booth and Pamela Hawley, played by Jenny Agutter are the two who get to speak. The other two, Arthur Darbinian and Donald Lee, just just look at him. They don't get to say anything. 
Uh, they're just there to be pretty faces in the dark. In the dark. Before we talk about uh, this particular scene, I, of course, wanted to jump into the IMDb oh, game. No. <laughs> That's right. Uh-oh. I always love doing the IMDb game. Oh, Powers no. Booth is uh, just, I mean, you know, fantastic actor. He's been in so many things. Sadly, passed away in 2017. 500 credits? Like, how would one begin? Only has 69, uh, surprisingly. <gasps> I, I feel like he has been around so much longer. But yeah, only 69 uh, credits. Oh, my goodness. Very can, crazy. Can you guess what IMDb says are his four known fours? For those uh, of you who aren't familiar, the IMDb game uh, on IMDb, it lists four films that any actor or any, any film, anyone involved in a film is known for. And it's very strange what uh, the algorithm is that picks the four, because uh, sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're like, why is that listed as one of their known four? So that's why it's a fun game. So what would you two say for the, for good old Powers Booth? Well, I, I cheated because I was I, I, I immediately, when you said IMDb, jumped to it. But I will say... <laughs> I will say that the one that I that I would have guessed or that I would always associate with him is on the list, and that's Tombstone. Of course. Oh, I would have said that. That's good. Yeah, that one I would have said for sure. The other two that are there, not so much. So, Pete, what are your okay, guesses? So, yeah, Pete. What so, it's really guess? just Pete. Pete plays the game. <laughs> yeah, Pete, like, thanks, Jay. Yeah. I appreciate well, that, man. I, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not competitive. I just win a lot. That's what I said. Um, <laughs> Uh, I would say uh, the Avengers and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and um, Sin City and um, is that four? Tombstone. Those would be my four. Yeah, those would be four. Okay, well, you got Sin City and you got the Avengers. Oh, good. The the other one is Sudden Death, the 95 film with Sudden uh, Death was Jean-Claude? Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. No, yeah, okay. I can see that. Yeah. I can see so that. those those are his four. Now, uh, without looking, JJ, uh, Jenny Agater, <laughs> are you too familiar with Jenny Agater's work? I'm not familiar with her, so I would be just throwing out wild. There yeah. are two very prominent films in her uh, career yeah. in the 70s, 80s, and I absolutely would say uh, I would put on her list. So I didn't, I didn't, as I was prepping, I, ha- I have her open in Letterboxd, and mm. so... Um, just it, because that's where I put my tab. So I haven't looked at her in IMDb, but I would, I know two that I think I would put at the top of the list. I would put, well, I, I would put the Avengers. Okay. Probably because it's so big. Uh, I would put American Werewolf in London because we've done it on the show. Sure. And I would put Logan's Run. Oh, okay. Um, because we haven't done it on the show, but we've we've talked. So those I have no idea what the other one. I mean, she's got more credits than Powers Booth, I think. Like 119. She's yeah. wow. Well, she's so, and, she's still working too. So yeah. Yeah. And I would say I, I did not cheat by looking at the IMDB here, but just looking at I did just look at what she has here in terms of uh in terms of films. I would definitely pick those two. And then I don't know, there always is a random one, isn't there? I mean, maybe, maybe just looking at her her filmography here, maybe they'd put old because it's so new. Mm. As in, it's it's, it's not old. Uh, I think it's <laughs> probably the other way around. Like it's so new, it's it probably not going to be. Oh, there. okay, yeah. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, oftentimes very new things don't end up on it. Gotcha. So what is it? What's the answer? Dark Man? Would you put Dark Man on there? It is uh, Logan's Run. 
Logan's Run is number one, and then An American Werewolf in London, then The Avengers, and Walkabout, which is, like, I I think of Walkabout, and I instantly go to her, because she is one of, like, the three characters through the bulk of the movie, and it's really, like, her film. So I totally would have picked great. that, and I would not have ever guessed Logan's Run, because I've never seen it, so. I would guess Logan's Run just on name recognition alone of the film, but yeah. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's why I put it on there. That's really interesting. Right. Now, the other two, um, I don't know if we're going to bother doing Arthur Darbinian uh, because he doesn't really get much time. You, you can barely even tell who he is. I'll just tell you his four. They're The Avengers, X-Men First Class, uh, Get Smart, and True Detective. He was on the three episodes of the Who does he play in X-Men First Class? He was the RLC captain. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, a guy piloting a boat. <laughs> it, it prob- probably in the dark in that one, too. Probably, probably. <laughs> and, and last but not least is Donald Lee, another face that uh, is is familiar to me because of one film that is on his IMDb known for, and it's Big Trouble in Little China. He plays Eddie Lee. Oh, yay. And so, yeah, I just, I love seeing him pop up. And then the Avengers, U.S. Marshals, he plays Detective Kim. And last but not least, Goal, The, the Dream Begins, a uh, a soccer movie. So, those yeah, are on, our four World Security Council members. Yeah, no. Well, big trouble, little China. Come on. Yeah, love them. I would not have. I would not have placed. <laughs> well, the problem is he's so one. dark on screen that I actually thought it was a different actor until I went to his IMDb page. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, because I mean, you can't see who they are. The only reason that, are. like, you kind of know it's Powers Booth is because his voice is his so voice. iconic. Yeah. Well, and I would say, I think it's interesting that in each of the four cases, the Avengers comes up as being known for, because they're they're sitting here in the dark. Like, there's (laughs) not much there. I know. It's really funny. All right. Well, let's talk about this scene. The World Security Council, this whole idea of the World Security Council actually is new. We There was an opportunity to talk about the World Security Council earlier in the film, actually in minute one, as uh, listeners may recall, because there was an alternate opening with Maria Hill being interrogated at the, at the World Security Council. But this is really the first time meeting them in the film proper. And so, uh, so what's your sense of, the, of this group, kind of this secret organization that's kind of running things? Uh, how does it play for the two of you? I... <laughs> I, I, I guess I I get it. I understand why it's there, but especially, I mean, we're going to talk about a deleted scene here with this too. And I think that yeah. really when you pair the two of them together, if you watch the two of them together, I almost feel like it's a tool of the writer to say, what's the exposition that I want to leave to put here most? Because they differ so greatly and uh, in terms of the dialogue. And I think I think because of that, and because I don't really remember this from the movie, if we weren't sitting here and examining the minute, it feels very not impo- unimportant to me. And so their presence is more of a, well, as, as evidenced by what they chose to put in the movie, of a nameless, faceless organization <laughs> that's meant to just move the plot along. And that, you know, I, I don't know that they need to be anything more, but that's all that they exist in my you know, lack of memory about them. I, you know, I think I'm more interested in the the way they are portrayed as this, like we have S.H.I.E.L.D. that is ostensibly an organization for good, but they're presented in a way that is dr- like pivoted evil. 
right? Like, like neutral, neutral evil, right? Because they are, they're shadowy figures. Why is their identity masked? S.H.I.E.L.D. is is not a, a masked identity organization normally, right? All the soldiers, everybody else, they don't generally wear masks unless they're dumb SWAT teams, uh, you know, members who can't go up and down stairs, as we talked about <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Um, I just really struggle with that. And I know, obviously, this choice right here is setting up something that plays out over the next, you know, several Avengers movies, right? Like, this is part of the the hydra phase that we that we get here and this this suddenly in retrospect makes more sense but i remember thinking as i'm in this movie why why are all these leaders of the world security council representatives presumably of their countries presented as if they are singular entities like people individual people who are representing only themselves as leaders of this like private organization of of global you know rule and so I love the design of it. I love that I'm provoked in that way because I think it's confusing in a in kind of a good way. And uh, I also, you know, I like the interaction, too, with Fury. It gives Fury a chance to, as he does many times in the movie, he, he says, no, we're going to do this other thing. I, I know that you exist and I'm going to do the other thing. And uh, I like that. The way that they're set up, and we should say this, uh, the World Security Council, from my understanding, was never in the comics up to this point. This film was actually their introduction into Marvel, and then they ended up bringing it into the comics afterward. That's my understanding of it. The way that it plays, like I, I look at it like this shadow government organization, like the Illuminati, not the Marvel Illuminati, but just kind of like this idea of this shadow group that is secretly trying to run things and it's different people people from different parts of the world although i don't know why it's just four in this particular case but it just it feels it does end up feeling very shadowy and and seeing shield working in in a situation that feels so shadowy does come across feeling peculiar to me and uh because shield does seem like it's a force for good and so it ends up playing kind of strange and so i I guess to your point, JJ, I like the way that you said it just it feels like the writer needed to put something in here as a way to get some exposition and to kind of a big part of this film is the the conversation between phase two versus the Avengers initiative. And which one are we going to be putting our funding into? And what are we going to move forward with? Because, again, they bring up this whole thing with phase two, which, again, is we're still kind of we as the audience are left in the dark at this point as to what phase two means. Um, we'll find out uh, later in this film. But uh, but Fury really wants to get going with the Avengers initiative. And that's kind of where things play. And it just, it ends up feeling, it just feels like a strange group for Fury to have to be reporting to. Well, and can I, a, a clarifying point, because I think I, I said something and I immediately devil's advocated myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to clarify because I I I know that Shield is naturally an an agency of espionage, right? I mean, they work in secret everywhere. Everybody's double agent, and the, all of their technology is, to my eye, designed not to freak everybody out. Like if they when later we'll see the helicopter rise up out of the ocean, and then it goes on to their their camouflage so that nobody can see it. Like I get that. I think my point is, and I think this leads us into our our uh, cutscene, that they're not secretive to one another in the MCU, right? right? That's right. like like 
nobody wears a mask to one another. They do in public, they do their thing, but to one another, they don't. And when you look at the way the uh, alternate cut of this sequence is played, it's played very much as I would have expected it to be played. I agree. I agree. And 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 when I talk about the difference in dialogue, it the, the, the purpose of these two pieces of exposition are completely different. You know, I mean, what they're trying to accomplish from a story perspective in what they chose versus what they didn't is completely evident in those two things. You know, the dialogue and then what you're talking about, Pete, which is the shadowy figures in what they chose versus the the sort of straight video conversation that is had in the deleted scene. Yeah, and everybody's well lit. Everybody's got their well ring lit. lights. Yep. Well, exactly. yeah. Well, it's funny in in the deleted scene there they did talk about the look that they were going for with the World Security Council and the initial tests that we get to see in that alternate uh scene is exactly what they had described as we went a different direction because they all looked like newscasters. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They do. And they all do. That is, 100%. that is accurate. 100%. That's a riot. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel like by the time we get to Winter Soldier, they found a better way to handle it. Like the way that they have kind of the the holograms of the different characters, that feels a little more high-tech, very science-y, like they're coming up with a way for these people in this upper echelon level of secret government espionage to be working, as opposed to this shadowy... I mean, it, the room isn't even well-lit. That's another thing no. that is so funny. He's in like, the dark. He's literally he's in, in the, the dark. dark room watching yeah. people sitting in the dark. Like, <laughs> like Don't forget Why to turn on the light. use to play, the phone? Yeah, right? play some like, ominous like, horror music and we're... <laughs> <laughs> someone's going to get killed here. It's it, it is very funny the way that it plays, but um, it's interesting to see. I will be curious to see how this World Security Council continues over the course of the film, especially because of the the number of additional cutscenes that we have with Maria Hill in this interrogation that she was going through, and her attitude toward Fury through those because they really play up this angle that she was kind of angling for his job. She didn't like what he was, the way that he was operating and everything. So yeah. to that end, it's like, I, I feel like they never quite figured out how to use this world security council. Right. I think so too. But I do think interestingly, the alternate scene, uh, regardless of what we think of the world security council answers an interesting question regarding Loki and his, motivation, brainwash, and intent to, as he fired on Fury. Uh, Loki, you I mean, mean Loki, you mean Hawk. Barton. I mean Barton. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. That's what, exactly what I mean. Uh, so right. his, in the cutscene, we actually get a, a, a an impression from Fury saying that he thinks that, that Loki, you know, he did shoot. Yeah, he shot me, but he didn't shoot me like it wasn't a headshot face. Yeah, he yeah. didn't. He didn't. He didn't try to shoot out my other eye. Uh, <laughs> he could have killed me if with, he wanted to. Yeah, right. right. He could have if he wanted to. I think that's really interesting. And again, and again, we're talking about Hawkeye. Not Loki. We're talking about Hawkeye. I keep <laughs> saying Loki. Yes, because this came up last time we were talking about the fact that Hawkeye does not shoot Maria Hill when she is trying to stop them exiting the um, the the uh, the base. Right. And so that is perhaps an explanation. This is maybe why he was missing. Maybe he's brainwashed, but that still won't break in his brainwashing as far as that. So it's interesting that that is in the cutscene here, and it's not something that we actually hear. And yeah. we don't get that yeah. in the movie. 
at all. Like, I feel like that's useful information in the movie. What we get in the movie is that there was, you know, and we'll talk about this, that there that he does have some sort of inner struggle later in the movie. We hear, oh, yeah, it was real bad. But we don't get to see that actually ever play out in a way that uh, or, or have any characters doubt his allegiance to Loki. Well, it's almost like in the scene that they chose instead of the deleted one, they, the, they're placing the doubt on Thor. As opposed to on Loki. <laughs> right. They're like, well, what about right. the brother? Do we have to worry about him too? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's a defense of a completely different character. And that's what I mean where I say that the dialogues are so vastly different that it's it's like a writer's choice in what they want to explain or the direction that they want to go. I think, I think the dialogue in the deleted scene is more valuable to the story, but I'm not exactly sure why they chose to go this other way. Yeah. You know, and... and it might be because of the look. It might be because they needed a different kind of shade to the story as well. Um, but it, it 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 seems confusing when you put them next to each other, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do feel like they probably were hitting a point in the uh, in the film where I can imagine a note coming from Feige to work on the script and say, hey, you know what? We haven't mentioned Thor in a while, and he's not showing up in a little while, so maybe we should just throw his name in there just to remind people that he will be popping up in this film at some point. Yeah. Because, to your point, it feels weird the way that that our councilwoman brings up his name or brings him up casually to uh, as a potential threat just to have Fury talk about him briefly. Like, it, it ends up right. feeling... Oh yeah, we need to make sure people remember that we're still talking about him too. Yeah, right. right. Not so much an Easter egg. No, right. More like a more like a scrambled egg for breakfast. Here you go. <laughs> right. Eat this. Eat this because he's coming up later. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I, I exactly. agree. I think that's an interesting point. I think that's very likely that something like that happened from the producer side of things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll get to talk a little bit more about the rest of this conversation um, with the World Security Council and Nick Fury uh, next time we meet when we're talking about Minute 21. But that's it for today. I don't think I have anything else unless either of you two have any last little notes. No, nope. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn on the lights as soon as I get out of here. <laughs> I heard to be in a shadowy <laughs> figure right. for you guys. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, JJ, remind everybody uh, where they can tune into some of the shows you've done over at True Story. Well, check out all the stuff at truestory.fm or even just go to thenextreel.com. Anything that is involving the past history of the film board and or trailer rewind is going to have lots of fun, interesting stuff of things that were in the theater and some nuggets, some special nuggets that you can find on streaming services for that trailer rewind thing. We've got new things coming down the pipe, lots of exciting ideas for the ways that we can bring those show back, shows back in interesting and exciting ways coming up here later in 2023. That's fantastic. Well, links. So check those out in the show notes, everybody. Uh, JJ, we certainly hope to get you back in here at some point before the end of the movie, and we will do our damnedest to make sure we do. So we'll look forward to that future conversation when we have it. Always answering the call. Assemble. Always answering the call. That's right. Assemble. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be back <laughs> next week to talk about Minute 21, everybody. So uh, thanks as always, Pete. Oh, Andy. Next week, it's flashback time. <laughs> All right. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm 
If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.